0: this is Christine. Welcome to the Rose Woman Pod. I'm your host. I'm also the founder of Rosebud Woman. So, you know, I have a distinctive bias towards anything that can give you more sensual pleasure, sexual pleasure in the body. Well, this week, my guest, Dr. Janine Anderson, is going to talk a little bit about what happens when your body is so denied that you have internalized Messages of it being bad, and don't even consider going out and learning more about how it operates. How you might even have difficulty speaking to your physician about how your body operates, and some of the unique challenges that impact women who've had sexual trauma, particularly at a young age, and some of the challenges in communication that affect women of color. So, she is a pretty amazing human. I met her at the Ishwish conference in February of 2020, right before the COVID outbreak. She was one of the uh, last interviews I did coming, you know, out of that conference. I remember just seeing she she approached the booth. She had this complete sparkle and joy about her, and she was about to give a presentation on a pretty serious topic but do it in such a way as to invite people to be in inquiry with her, not talk at people. And as she got up and told the stories of the women that she'd included in her research, my heart just cracked open. And that's the power of a good sex communicator. A good communicator in general is just to let you feel with other people. So Janine is an assistant professor in the Department of Health Promotion and Disease Prevention in the College of Nursing at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center in Memphis, and she's earned a Ph.D. and a Master's of Public Health from the University of Southern California. She researches the relationship between patient-provider communication practices and clinical and quality of life outcomes among women and adolescents of color specifically She studies the ways in which patients and medical care providers share power and responsibility to achieve patient health goals in sexual health and chronic disease management as well. She's been the co-investigator of two federally funded studies which examine patient-provider sexual communication and sexual quality of life among women with early-stage hormone receptor-positive breast cancer She's also conducted research to explore how adolescents use social media for health information seeking and to reduce sexual risk reduction and to reduce risks of, of sexual diseases or pregnancies. You'll learn a lot from her in this pod. And one of the things I hope she models for everyone, woman of color or human being on planet Earth, is the vital nature of our own inquiry and taking charge of our care. My friend Robin Farman-Farmian wrote a book uh, called The Patient as CEO, basically shifting your whole model of health care to you being in charge of it and taking ownership over the communication between your providers, whether they're medical providers or your massage therapist, chiropractor, psychotherapist, your physician, that the, care, the providers are all there serving you, but rarely is there a comprehensive picture among the providers. The linchpin is you and how that information is shared. So whether it's a sexual issue, a mental health issue, or a chronic disease question, or a cancer question, that you basically learn to stand up and ask, no matter how much more authoritative or how rushed the physician might seem. So without further ado, please welcome Dr. Janine Anderson to the Rose Woman pod.
1: So you're at the University of Tennessee, right? I am, I'm at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center, which is in Memphis, Tennessee. Can you tell us a little bit more about the context in which you do your work? Well, yeah, so I uh, am a new assistant professor in the Department of Health Promotion and Disease Prevention in the College of Nursing at the Health Science Center. I am not a nurse by training. I've had a really circuitous uh, career. I first started as a trained journalist, primarily working in the Black Press. For four years, I was a high school teacher working in the trenches in uh, South Dallas. And then um, I decided to pick up my life um, as a teacher and start a new venture, which was research, which was really um, inspired by the young women students I had who experienced a host of sexual health challenges, whether that was um, unintended pregnancies, um, I would call uh, probably less than optimal knowledge about abortion care, um, and a whole host of, you know, sexually transmitted diseases. They just experience a lot of uh, sexual health challenges without education. Um, And so I got frustrated about seeing um, the young women that were under my care as a teacher struggle uh, but, but I didn't have the requisite knowledge to really do, to do anything I would I would say. So I went to graduate school with the intention to make a change. And so I now I got a PhD in communication from the University of Southern California and concurrently I got a master of Public Health degree in health communication um, from the same university. And so after a series of graduate classes, I did a postdoc at UT and at Emory University I now have landed in a college of nursing and so um, I really find it to be serendipitous that I ended up in a college of nursing where the primary ethic of nursing is care and so uh, my research really focuses on how can uh, women, particularly women of color, um, better care for their sexual selves and in doing so, better communicate with their medical care providers, whether that is their um, oncology provider, if they have a cancer diagnosis, their primary care provider, or a gynecologist or some, some specialized um, well, discipline. I
0: was moved by your, um, when we were talking in Florida about the, mm-hmm. the narrative of this start, that no matter what your other capacities are as a woman, your intellectual capacities, your uh, creative or artistic capacities—they all rest on the prerequisite that you're um, master of your own body, and that these mm-hmm. had all of this potential and com- and competency uh, were getting pulled in by the, were getting sort of tripped up by this lack of knowledge on how their reproductive right. systems operated. So even just starting with knowledge of reproduction, and that you moved into sexual communication, which I didn't even know was a profession, but. You <laughs> communication with the intent of uh, providing sort of not not just education but really underneath that is more freedom and the capacity empowerment empowerment and so that's really at the heart of all communication and specifically in this area sexual communication done right is power And then you didn't take a traditional, like, I'm going to do a poll. I'm going to do a survey. You started your research by going out and into women's homes. And Mm -hmm. and, and so you used language in your presentation that sounded so genuine and non-clinical about what it was like to walk into a woman's home and be interested about her. And that that was one of the things that doctors... Um, didn't seem to have the time for to be truly and deeply interested in what had happened to their patients before they arrived in the office. So can you talk a little bit about what it's like to sit down with someone and
1: ask them these really mm-hmm. personal questions? Absolutely. Well, I first have to say I'm always eternally grateful for anybody who participates in research. I have, I wear several hats, but I think primarily, although my my professional title as assistant professor, I really see myself as a patient advocate. And so I have in my research tool bag some ways in which I can effectively extract women's stories so that they can better tell them. I I am always um, inspired, surprised, humbled by the stories that women hold inside that they sometimes try to divorce. Um, from their social identity. And they try to separate their stories of oftentimes pain or loss, trauma. Um, But resilience is in there as well. And so my job as a qualitative researcher primarily is to help women tell their stories. Um, I, I I try to stay away from this idea of using my research to give people voice because they already have it. I see myself as a conduit by which to give women, particularly black women, a platform to tell their own stories to an audience that they probably don't have access to, researchers and clinicians and interventionists. And so as a conduit, Um, I really try to take a humble position, which is why I've been really fortunate to have most women allow me to come into their homes because we know our our home is the most sacred and safest of spaces, or at least it should be. Mm. And so I prefer to have those um, in-person, pre-COVID, of course, those in-person conversations in a place where a woman feels most safe. Now I will um, say that that primarily has been people's homes, but I I have also interviewed people in more neutral places, libraries, coffee shops, because I recognize that the home is not always a safe place. And so I'm even more intrigued when a woman says, well, I actually would prefer to speak more candidly, more candidly with you outside of the home. But either way, I think um, to, to talk to women, Um, and get them to share what has been um, some very intimate, um, sensitive conversations around uh, sexual health challenges, sexual dysfunction, um, interpersonal challenges. So we're talking about sometimes um, marital rape or infidelity, um, some serious sexual traumas. I do so by really what I I call um, safely opening people up and then closing them closing them back up safely. And so what that means is that really engaging women in a slow process. Um, My interviews are as long as a woman is willing to talk to me. I try to be respectful of her time and keep it to about 60 minutes and 90 minutes. But if a woman wants to share longer, I'm there. If a woman gets fatigued and tired or is becoming overwhelmed, we can stop it at whatever place that she's starting to feel uncomfortable. And so for me, it's about asking those first kind of innocuous questions to get to know women. But I, Christine, I can't I can't stress that I don't take the question, just tell me about yourself. That is my favorite question. Of all the interviews I've done around my around my my work, I love that first question. Just tell me about yourself. Because invariably women often I've never heard a doctor ask, I've never heard a physician. (laughs) walked in and have a physician, he or she say, just tell me about yourself. Thanks. And it's, it's really interesting that you say that because that often is a question that unnerves people the most. They fidget, they wiggle, and they say, well, what do you want me to say? And I always say, whatever you feel comfortable sharing, because what they share often gives me the greatest insight. I have had women share and disclose sexual trauma within the first two minutes of our conversation because that was what was heaviest on their heart or challenges dealing with the cancer diagnosis or managing medication adherence. So that question, just tell me about yourself. I hear about grandkids and prize-winning pies, and I hear all of the things that matter most. And what I've taken away from that is that although we know that physicians are pressed for time, the time constraints may not change because of our healthcare system, that one question just tell me about yourself, even if this is a, a recurring patient, a patient with whom a doctor has been seen for an extended period of time. Just tell me about yourself or what's going on lately. Oftentimes may be um, the opening of a door that patients need because it indicates that my doctor cares about me. And that I keep going back to care, but that's what my, um, the women I've worked with have said. I just don't know if my doctor cares about me. He cares about my lab work. He cares about my, you know, the, my chart work. He cares about the questions about my knee pain and my joint pain. But I don't know if he really cares about me. That's he a, or she
0: cares about me. It's uh, <clears throat> like a care fatigue or something when you're seeing somebody mm-hmm. every 15 minutes. So slow down. Um, actually come from a heart of care. Ask a few broad uh Open, more open-ended, whole person questions that demonstrate that we are because mm-hmm. we're interested in the person um, and not just the symptom. Because often, don't you find that people will talk about a symptom or a condition, but there's so many more layers below it? And in being a diagnostician, you're like listening between the lines. I mean, I find that in psych- mm-hmm. psycho spiritual work that you're listening mm-hmm. the lines for what's really going on there because it's rarely what's on the surface initially.
1: So. Absolutely. What, but, and so I, I will speak from my most recent experience and that's working in oncology care. Um, so many, much, much of the work that I'm, we may talk about today is coming from several studies I did um, with women with breast cancer. Um, but I'm super excited that hopefully I'll get to start some projects in the near future with women with gynecological cancer as well as uh, transgender folks um, seeking sexual and reproductive health care. But those are in the works, so everyone cross their fingers for me. Them. Um, I think one of the one of the reasons that providers struggle with um, sexual health conversations with their patients. I mean, I, I do have to make the disclaimer that research does suggest that male providers struggle with this a bit more than female providers. But uh, providers struggle. For several reasons. Um, number one, there is often very little training in medical education, fellowships around communication. And so a doctors, physicians come into practice knowing how to provide care to the body, but with very little training on how to communicate that process mm-hmm. to their patients. And so we know that there have, there's now a shift towards the patient-centered model, but that shift is, very, is relatively new in the history of medicine. For the longest time, we had a very paternalistic model. So when the doctor was authority. it was against social norms to ask a lot of questions. Uh, the patient was expected to listen, follow, and obey. And so with this new model, patients are becoming more empowered. They're asking more questions. They're relying on their full communication networks, a full ecology of media, family, friends, co-workers, um, social media outlets to gain information. And they're coming to that communication environment much more uh, willing and ready to have these conversations, to engage in shared decision-making. And I don't think providers are really ready for that. Uh, Another, another challenge is that when it comes to sexual health, providers discuss um, some discomfort with talking about sex and sexuality for their own self. Um, Our physicians are humans too, and so if they have their own discomfort around sex and sexuality, they bring that to the clinic room. Um, Doctors talk about not wanting to offend patients, and so sometimes Uh, the conversation around sexual health is not initiated by physicians because they're waiting to see what rises to the top from their patients. So if a patient comes in talking about other symptoms, not sexual health, even though that's foremost on her mind, the provider will address what is raised. And so sexual health is kind of like this pink elephant in the room where patient and provider want to talk waiting for the other to initiate. Um, there also, you know, there's oftentimes um, lack of training around delivering bad news. Um, so if a patient is having a sexual health challenge for which there is specific um, ill illness, infirm, or maybe not much help that can be provided, uh, doctors don't really know how to present that bad news effectively so oftentimes it's not delivered in the most compassionate way.
0: I'm getting, and I'm lastly, empathy, there. I'm getting some empathy for the provider as you're talking, you know, that yeah, like, like if it, a patient, if I come in and I go, oh, you were like a pre-med kid who went in biology and chem and you learned joints and you learned how, and you learned all this really specialized knowledge, but you mm-hmm. don't learn how to communicate any more than I learned how to communicate. So now <laughs> yeah, I I'm not that, at all. Then I can Mm -hmm. go in and I can say, hey, you know, I can say, can we talk about sex in a really simple way, even as a patient? Or can we talk about my pain in my vagina as a patient? Mm -hmm. Absolutely. um, I would know then that they weren't not asking because they didn't want to know, but because they themselves had social inhibition, lack of training. Mm -hmm. absolutely. Absolutely. Humanizes the provider in so many ways.
1: Absolutely, and I think that's what I wanted to bring to this conversation about about the about the dual responsibility. Um, providers definitely, because they have specialized knowledge and training, do bear some responsibility. I don't want to I don't want to shirk responsibility from the providers. They do. I do want to empower um, women who will be watching and t- today or later on that that it's not that your provider doesn't care. Um, It's not that your provider is wholly ambivalent to what may be happening with your sexual health. He or she just may not know that that is something that you want to talk about within the time constraints. And so I I wish that there could be no time constraints, that everything can be discussed in the clinic visit, but we know that that's not the case. And so I I say to the women I work with, that this is really pressing to you, initiated, even in the smallest of ways. Doctor, I know we're gonna talk about my lab work. I know we're gonna talk about some progress, but this is what's been happening. I have some questions about X. I have questions about vaginal dryness or some unusual bleeding. Um, I have some questions about some relationship challenges that are happening because of my loss of libido. Um, Even if your provider can just provide for referrals. That may be the best that the provider can do in the time frame, but at least it's been documented in your electronic health record. And ask, I tell women, ask for these things to be documented. Even if the provider says, well, we're running out of time, say, can the fact that we need to talk about my sexual pain or relationship challenges be documented and addressed either by a nurse, a patient advocate, social worker, I need those, um, those things addressed.
0: I love that. I think we could um, actually have a little public campaign, educational campaign. <laughs> uh, going to your doctor, mm-hmm. and ask, ASQ, ask sexual questions. Yes,
1: <laughs> yes. just
0: a little, um, can you, so I'm really interested in, you know, we've heard a lot uh, through our platform of women who are on chemo drugs and having a lot of driving. <laughs> And they use some, a lot of women who have cancer end up needing uh, moisturizing supplements and things like that. But Mm -hmm. um, can you talk a little bit about chemo in particular, about breast loss and impact on like a woman's um, self-concept around the impact Mm -hmm. on sexual health? Like what are you hearing in the oncology study from your patients?
1: Yeah, so... Um. (laughs) The active treatment for chemo, active treatment for breast cancer, probably all gynecological cancers, really does a number on a woman's entire sexuality. Um, and when it comes to breast cancer, between 32 and 93 percent of all women with a breast cancer diagnosis will experience some kind of sexual dysfunction. So on the low end, it's 32 percent. Um, one in three, but on the high end, that is almost the full kit and caboodle—ninety-three percent of women. And so, the the, ex, the experiences or the severity, the, excuse me, the severity varies. Some women that I have spoken with uh, experienced just a little vaginal dryness, um, maybe a little loss of libido that was temporary. Um, So their sexual health challenges were not so severe and they were temporary. And so women were then able to uh, kind of isolate um, the changes in their bodies and their mood. Specifically, they were able to attribute it specifically to the cancer treatment. And then that didn't change their self-concept. They were able to identify the external stressor and not have that change their identity Um, their sexual identity, or really their their mental health. And so we call those women, um, those with more positive sexual schemas. So women with more positive sexual schemas usually have a more um, positive, open, some people say more liberal uh, perception of their sexual identity. They're oftentimes more able to communicate their sexual needs to a partner or a provider as opposed to women who have what we call a negative or a weak sexual schema and so those women are oftentimes um, characterized as having more conservative or negative views of sex and sexuality um, and they are oftentimes less likely to communicate their needs Um, they are oftentimes more likely to attribute these external stressors to something intrinsically wrong with what with them and so or women who have a weak or negative sexual schema, sexual dysfunction can really have a negative impact, a negative long-term impact on their sexual identities and sexual sex concepts.
0: So they think. Um, it, so when you say schema, you're talking about like a pattern, uh-huh. patterning or a set of beliefs. Is that what yes. that is? There a set of so, so when yes, is, I, I think it's very interesting, oh, negative and negative and weak kind of go together. That it's it's not mm-hmm. that you think about it in a negative. But you just might not have any, like an absence of of a a concept, mm-hmm. of, or even like a concept of where you got your sexual beliefs or how you think about this part of your body. And and so that that's a much larger conversation around how culture and experience. Mm-hmm. The, the formation of identity, although I like your word schema, some the <laughs> formation of your sexual <laughs> schema, which I've never, used, <laughs> that, that, that you can have like no idea that what you're going through is universal, that women of all ages, of all ages and stages mm-hmm. who are having cancer experience are also having it. You feel very private and closed because you've been
1: long that sexuality is private and closed. Mm-hmm.
0: So there's, there's even a larger migration it would seem, from a weak or a negative or weak to a positive identity in this area that will happen as part of your healing process, ideally, that you will learn that it's not just you. Is that,
1: is that what, I, am I hearing you correctly in that? Yeah, and so, and so I think, I, just so I can be clear, this idea of sexual schemas comes um, um, from the 60s. Our sexual schema is derived from our past experiences and they manifest in our current experience. So it's the idea that our sexual schemas are ongoing, they are are live, they are organic, they are developing, um, and they give us guidance for our behaviors. And so a woman with a positive sexual schema may have had um, some early trainings about the openness, the naturalness, the beauty of sex and sexuality, Um, she may have had. Uh, positive experiences, varied experiences, multiple partners in a, in a safe, non-coercive, non-shameful experience. And so over time, that woman has developed a more positive, open a- um, attitude about sex and sexuality. So then when something like cancer comes and there's a real disruption to the body, a disruption of herself, there's loss of breast, there may be loss or partial loss of breast. Sometimes there, be, there might be actually loss of organs, hysterectomies, um, you know, removal of, of ovaries. That woman then is able to compartmentalize, such, so to speak, the external stressors and say, I still am this person who I have identified as. I had this thing happen called the C-word, but it hasn't changed fundamentally who I am. And so then that woman may be more likely to ask for help. She may be more likely to use products and services to help get her sexual life back on track. And she may be more likely to initiate conversations with authority figures, providers, friends to to give her some information about how to return to what is her normal or, or a new normal. Um, And so the women with weak sexual schemas are just oftentimes not able to do so. And so they have real blows to their sexual identities. And so the question that you asked was about what happens when there's a a loss, so that the loss of um, your body part, sometimes there's the loss of um, identity. I really think that there is a a real correlation between what happens with a cancer diagnosis and a cancer journey to the changes in one's sexual identity and one's social identity. You go from being um, maybe this vibrant, fun, active, sexy, feminine woman, and then something like cancer really can shift your worldview. So depending on perhaps your schema, you may respond to this cancer diagnosis as a complete loss of yourself. So not just the loss of a breast, the loss of some ovaries, but the loss of who you are. And so now your sexual identity has really um, taken a negative blow. And that has implications for anxiety, depression, and other mental health challenges. Uh,
0: So let's just talk broadly. Like, there, you know, women have, um, for many centuries, had no overt power. No voting power, absolutely. economic power, and so a tremendous amount of power was has has always come sideways, covert power through mm-hmm. sexuality and attractiveness, and so now mm-hmm. you know. So you, and then at the same time, because that is such a powerful place, it's also been like shrouded in mystery. There's no there's no there's oh, really clear why your teenagers in Dallas didn't know anything about their body because the, if they're in power, then about their body, they're threatening. And if they're in power over their sexuality, they have more control. So now we're talking about coming Mm -hmm. into, you know, uh, looking at the sneak thing about women and, you know, both a blessing and a curse is that one of the ways we have uh, achieved overt power in a world that wouldn't give it to us is through our sexuality. And now you go and you have a breast removed, or you suddenly have no libido, and no, you don't want to romp three or four or five nights a week. Sorry, not really interested in that. <laughs> so, right. So, so one of the in a dysfunctional culture, one of the great sources of your power is also gone. So this this idea right. of identity. Um, being attacked—it's—it's it's not just your concept. It's like, what am I going to do now to get noticed, yeah. to
1: get approved, mm-hmm. to get—I'm
0: mm-hmm.
1: taking some notes about that—to get noticed. <laughs> this is just like a hit, you know.
0: Like, like, where do you get yeah. you get your worth? If you get your worth through sexual behavior <laughs> or sexual attraction mm-hmm. or reproductive capacity, you know, yeah, um, you have to bring to the table. If you if you don't have a voice, um. Yeah. Okay. I'll stop. This is your interview.
1: Well, you know, but I'm so. But so this is this is the beauty of of why I am so grateful that Christina's in my life now. Because for those who will be watching this kind of free flow conversation, we could do all the time. And so when you said get noticed, it reminded me of um, such a moving interview I had uh, with a, a black woman with a with breast cancer survivor. I mean, she talked about. Um, how she could she could manage her her sexual side effects, so to speak, um, and she had had a double mastectomy um, and had chemotherapy, so had lots of scars, um, keloids around where the where the chemo ports had been, and so she just talked about how um, she was so grateful to still be alive with a really big um, a long family history of breast cancer. So she was thankful to be alive, but when she looked at her nude body, it caused her distress and not so much for a vanity purpose, but really speaking to what you just said about getting noticed. And she said to me that she just no longer feels pretty enough to have sex. Mm. And so she said to me, you know, she has one large breast and one small breast one breast that has a a brown nipple and one that has a black nipple. She has scars and keloids, her toenails have fallen off and her immune system is erect so she has boils and keloids and all of this. And so she just said, I'm not worth looking at. And she broke down in tears and as I held her hand, I said, do you really feel like that? And she was like, well, yes, because how am I ever gonna have a partner? She said, if if women who have it all together, who have long hair, pretty skin and pretty legs and hips and all of this, um, that black men like, if those women still have a hard time keeping a man, what chance do I have? And so when I listened to her, um, because she laughed and joked with me, her sister girl throughout the rest of the, of the interview. It was only when it came to this aspect of dating, because she still was able to work. She was a teacher and loved her kids. Um, she was still able to have time with her children and do the thing, dance and those things. It was only when it came to that aspect of dating that her concept, her self-concept tanked. And so when you said this thing about getting noticed, it resonated with me, because I think that there, that's part of where physicians could really intervene successfully that women may even if they may be able to manage the side effects they need assistance in being able to now manage their new normal in their new presentation of self to a potential or current romantic or sexual partner
0: yeah, this is so, this is so important. So it was another presenter at the conference who said that the number one predictor of a woman's sexual satisfaction is how she feels about her body. Okay. And, and so, you know, I'm like, turn out the lights and feel, you know, there's, there's like a, a lot of people are visual stimulated, but what, what will happen when you, uh you know, as a woman who's experiencing major and uncomfortable physical changes what if you just Mm -hmm. go into the internal experience of what it's like to Mm. give pleasure or to receive without the visual aid or the visual stimulation so what do you tell them you listen to them and then you're as a researcher you're really receiving their stories and 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 finding patterns you're not a therapist No, I'm not.
1: Mm -hmm. Yeah, it'd be so hard not to give. (laughs) Well, but you know what? But here, and and this is also where I may be breaking some of the rules as a researcher, because I have the pleasure of doing work with my sisters. I I like, but I really believe that that's not just something trite I'm saying. So when I walk into another black woman's home. Um, We are sisters first. And so we may have a shared culture, a shared love, a shared background. You know, although I lived in Los Angeles for a long time, I I was born and raised Southern. And so now that I'm back in Memphis, there are some shared cultural experiences. And so in in that part, there are many times I've noticed for myself as a researcher that I really teeter back and forth in this insider-outsider role and so um I as someone who I have not had a breast cancer diagnosis, but who has had some of the same experiences um around sexual health challenges that many of the women I work with as um the, or my participants, so to speak um i I don't give advice, and I definitely do not provide any medical advice, but I do share my own experiences i I definitely do disclose I have disclosed um challenges, interpersonal challenges. I've disclosed difficulties communicating with my own providers. And so I do believe that my disclosures have at least provided some impetus for their own increased communication. I have had several participants call me and say, you know what, I did that interview with you and I had a a clinic visit with my doctor and I said, we need to talk about this today. And so for that, that for me is really gratifying as a researcher because um, you know what? I'm not objective. I, I'm not just this, you know, a, a slate this or this just receiving information and writing it. I'm synthesizing. I'm making meaning of it. I'm sharing meaning. That's why I keep trying to say. I, I, The women I do my work with, we are in, um, we are co-laborers together. We are really co-creating this knowledge that I'm sharing today with you and with others. So I don't just say that this is what I think that women have told me I think. This is what happens in our conversations, that we really do dialogue and sometimes come to new meaning-making together in those interviews. I say things like, I'm hearing you say this and it makes me feel like this. And they'll say, well, you know what Jane?" I actually think it's more this. And so that push-pull, I think, is what's exciting for me as a researcher to be in a co-laboring, co-creation process. I love that. You, you know, you brought up the race question, so I want to go there. I mean, race is a very different okay.
0: topic in America. I'm going to make an assumption that healthcare, like that the, the number of doctors is not representative of the number of Black or brown people in America. Still not. Absolutely. So, so we know that it's it's much more likely that a black or brown patient is going to be talking to a white or Asian physician, representationally. So right. you you how does it impact how does race impact communication with the provider? How does it in your experience how the provider what what a provider's racial biases might be as they speak to black women and what black mm-hmm. women think about? their white male provider or even their white female provider? Like, how does it impact it from what yeah. you've heard?
1: Yeah. Um, and it is, and it, I think um, <clears throat> the events in our country in the last week has made the issue of race even more salient. And so I... Can I, can I just say I'm I, so, so sorry. <laughs> this is still <laughs> happening. These stories of
0: like, oh, we went to the wrong house, so we killed you. Uh, I mean, mm-hmm. I jogging, so i uh, I was afraid of you, so I killed you like i, I, I it's it's like i mean, I really want to weep uh most of the days, and like how little we've learned and how much is still in our systems
1: yeah really- well and I, and i and I, pre- and I think i have been um i have been weeping I, I because i i go into the world um despite my degrees and training, I go into the world as a black woman. Um, and I go into the world as a black woman with a father and a brother and uncles, um, and I go into the world as myself. And so I think they're, you know, their Brianna Taylor was was killed as well. And so um, there's the loss of not only black male life, but black female life. And so I'm glad that you asked this question because all of that, um, and I'm going to put like my communication scholar hat on, but all of that is the context when people go into the clinic visit so what happens in the news what happens um, outside your backyard um the collective black trauma that happens on social media as we're trying to find a way to mourn um, the killing of our brothers and sisters daily that comes into the clinic visit and so it comes into the clinic visit because it's part of the larger communication environment the noise so to speak so, so, when you, so when there are instances of race discordant or gender discordant, so differences in race and gender between a patient and a provider, we are still humans. And what we saw in the news um, and what we're struggling with in our own um, bodies shows up. And so well, what we also know is that unfortunately, there are still implicit biases Um, in the medical profession because there are implicit biases in all professions because there are implicit biases in all of us and so I say that because I'm not vilifying doctors I really do believe that there are very very few if any doctors who intentionally try to cause harm to black and brown patients I do not believe that Um, what I do believe is that you really have to intentionally, diligently fight white supremacist ideals in a daily life. And what I mean by that is there's so many things um, that happen innocuously. This idea of um, uh, Black patients being medically non-adherent idea so what we know is that black um, what we know is that black patients usually get less talk time with their providers i.e providers spend less time with black patients compared to white patients Um, black women are less likely to have their pain managed appropriately compared to white women we've seen rates of black maternal death regardless of ses because of black moms not being adequately listen to when they raise concerns during the gestational period. And so these are instances of the implicit biases that I'm talking about. And so oftentimes when it comes to sexual health, um, providers may have some ideas about what is black female sexuality. I had one participant in particular say to me that she believes that, and, and this is her belief, she believes that physicians are more likely to suggest hysterectomies for Black women to control Black female sexuality. And so, and she was an older Black woman, and so she said, you know, but she has had a provider say to her, why are you still asking about sexual health? Excuse me, that part of your life is over. Um, And so, Uh, I think that those are the things that happen in conversations um, that lead patients to believe uh, that their providers don't care about them. Um, Instances of, um, yeah, so just instances of questions that patients feel are inappropriate. Um, uh, I've had black lesbian women talk to me about the feelings of discomfort disapproval uh, when they bring in their female partners um and i've had white women who ironically had the same physician not share those experiences and so um it's led me to believe that doctors like police officers like teachers like any profession have to really go through an intentional um, guided experience of identifying internal implicit biases because they show up in the ways in which um, physicians can do their job um, unbeknownst to them. And so I think, you know, what I have heard from my Black female patients is that their doctors don't touch them. They don't ask about their family and friends. They don't provide them with the same level of information. Um, they don't give them uh, the same amount of time or space. They may not listen to a friend or a family member who comes in as a social support uh, perhaps, person. And so those are the ways that I'm talking about for implicit biases. But compounded, that's what makes a communication environment so fraught and definitely not inviting for something as sensitive as sexual um, for patients of color and those from other marginalized
0: communities. I mean, it's such a rich territory. You know, I was thinking about, um, when you were saying like black non adherence um, mm-hmm. because it's not only like, is what I think about a black person or black culture true, you know, mm-hmm. it's also, so, so even if, and particularly, is it sexual, is black, black sexual culture that's representative of, culture actually black sexual culture or is like that right. a made up thing? So I have mm-hmm. I would have to as a provider check in on is it true or is it not true? And then if there is something right. true, like the research shows non-adherence, then I have to look at causality. Like is it is right. it I'm not spending time with with them or is it true because of you know broader um you know economic socioeconomic issues or what mm-hmm. they're doing at home or you know, or an ordered pharmacological system, like there's mm-hmm. other questions on then root cause. And so I'm curious about, like, if you've seen any uh, research that outs these implicit biases, like, like, hey, do you think any of these certain things Which one of these things are true? Like actually look like, you don't have to share this information with me. Just fill out what you think are true and then we'll show you on the next page which are not true. Uh, You know, like just even something as simple as that to help do what you're saying to out implicit bias. Is there something like that for physicians?
1: Yeah, so there there are lots of researchers um, who have been doing work uh, in implicit biases among providers in so many disciplines, primary care, um, 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 oncology, Uh, that is gonna be the next area of my work as I I have completed a couple of studies from the patient perspective. And I'm so thankful for um, the research partners I have Um, in Memphis who have been really open and welcoming of my work, so I I do definitely want to say that there are providers that will acknowledge I'm not doing this communication thing very well. Um, And that to me is the first step, I could be doing better. And sometimes it's just about, um, you don't know what you don't know. And so what I am hoping to do in the next iteration of my research is share with the providers what I have learned from their patients. In order to develop training protocols, um, listening protocols, listening, listening, active listening is probably the easiest but underutilized intervention. Uh, but there will need to be some actual cultural humility, um, relational empathy training so that providers can now see, as I mentioned in, a, in the presentation that you saw, sometimes medication non-adherence I have found has been related to sexual trauma. And so a woman is not taking this medication that's causing her loss of control of her bodily function because that triggers a previous loss of control from a sexual trauma. And I had so many providers come up to me and say they had never made that connection. They had never really thought that the reason that a patient was not taking medication as prescribed was because of something so nuanced as a previous experience. Yeah. it's like another thing about who's sovereign. Where's your
0: control? Mm-hmm. I, could talk to you, I really could talk to you all day. So yes. I hope we do. <laughs> um, I just want to say Absolutely. this idea that, you know, you found this, this, this location, like the, the, di- the Venn diagram between sexuality, uh, mm-hmm. race, the medical profession, and then this like, with this, the heart, this like sweet heart behind it. This like kindness and deep interest that I guess is the heart of nursing, you know, in a way. And so, that put it's just such a beautiful and complex place to be in service. You know, they're all such hot topics. Sexual? Could you pick hotter (laughs) topics than sexuality? (laughs) (laughs) Question. Um, I, I adore you. I adore you. You're like the one of the the best things to come out of that conference, and there was a lot of good things. Oh, to come thank out of it. Like you. you. Well, thank you so much, um, Dr. Janine Anderson, uh, ten, University of Tennessee School of Nursing, PhD, working at the intersection of sexuality, race, the medical profession, working with the and communication, and communication, right? Because she's a journalist first. Um, If you want to, uh, <laughs> if you want to learn more, we're going to do a little bit more on. Um, this topic, Uh, we'll write up some notes from this, we'll put some uh, research studies, we're gonna put the researchers Mm -hmm. through intellectual schema, -schema, self-schema, specific bias in the medical profession, questions you can ask your
1: doctor, if you're a doctor or provider, Mm -hmm. questions you can ask your patient. I just wanna say thank you, thank you, thank you for the platform, thank you for the work that you do, thank you for your genuine, authentic interest in the lives of women. Um. It does not go unnoticed. And so, if anyone who is watching wants to reach out to me directly, no. um, <clears throat> feel free to reach out to me on Twitter at dr underscore jn anderson or my website uh, at the University of Tennessee Health Science Center. Will be in that resource uh, list.
0: Great. That's perfect. Um, Yeah. And also, if you have questions, you can send them and we'll follow up with questions. Um, Absolutely. Thank you so much for joining me on the Rose Woman pod. I'm Christine Marie Mason, your host. The pod is brought to you by Rosebud Woman, a company I started in the intimate skincare space. You can find our amazing products at rosewoman.com. Vegan, plant-based, pure, effective, all the good stuff. The guests and I imagine people out there when we do these shows and think, how can we bring one little bit of insight, one little lever to create more spaciousness or happiness out to the world? So if you like the pod, you know what to do. Please share it, rate it, review it, subscribe, all of that stuff so that we can feel your love and support and keep doing it. Have a wonderful day, no matter where you're at. May the grace and joy that rests at the center of you be readily apparent. See you next time.